What a lovely introduction. Thank you so much. Good evening. You know, we professors talk a lot. We deliver lectures to our students, we lead discussions, we talk to the press, we present papers at conferences, and we discuss other people's papers. But for me, tonight is different. Tonight, I have the distinct honor of delivering a lecture named for Henry J. Abraham, a giant in my field and a giant to me. Professor Abraham is, of course, the consummate professional, and watching him at conferences and meetings over the years helped me to define the kind of academic I wanted to be. But even more than that is Professor Abraham's scholarship. He has written many, many important books. This is just a small sample and articles. But as Barbara noted, it was justices, presidents, and senators that rocked my world. I so marked up my version, this was my original version, of the 1999 edition that I had to buy a second copy. So I'm consistent, I am consistent. And I have now been able to secure a reasonably pristine first edition published in 1974, which I'm hoping that Professor Abraham will inscribe for me. If you haven't read the latest version of the book, you must. It remains the most important, the most interesting, and the most insightful analysis on the topic. It is truly sui generis, and it's truly the starting point for all scholarship on the appointments process, including my talk tonight. In fact, I want to start with a story which I adapt from Professor Abraham's book. Can you all see it back there? the screen, would you just take a second to read it? You got it? Okay. Now, if I asked my con law students who was the subject of this story, I think they might say William Rehnquist, or more likely, Robert Bork. As many of you know, both would be wrong, because this story is about Louis Brandeis, whom Woodrow Wilson nominated to the court in 1916. If this account of the Brandeis nomination indicates anything, it is that political clashes over candidates for the Supreme Court are nothing new. No, they did not start with Merrick Garland, and no, they didn't start with Robert Bork. The appointment of justices is now, and always has been, a contentious process, one driven largely by partisan and ideological concerns on the parts of presidents and senators. And that's the first part of the argument I want to make to you tonight. But there's a second part, 
The appointment process is and always has been political because the justices themselves are political, often making decisions based on their own political values rather than on legal materials or methodologies. This fact explains why the process is so mired in politics, because the outcomes of that process, the justices themselves, are political and political in predictable ways. Now, I realize one or both parts of this argument may, will, trouble you. Some will take issue right away with the first part, maintaining that the process has in fact changed markedly over the last few decades and not for the better. These and other commentators have called federal judicial selection a mess, abysmal, badly broken, and downright disorderly, contentious, and unpredictable. And they've come up with maraud solutions for these problems. To the extent that these critiques suggest that the appointment of justices is no longer an elite affair played out in private between the Senate and the President, I agree. No doubt the process is much more public, call it democratic with a small d, what with public hearings jam-packed with conventional media, and of course social media, sometimes used by the politicians themselves. And then there's interest group pressure in and out of Congress. But to the extent that critics call, suggest that democracy has created wholesale change, I disagree. And I will argue presidents from the early years of the United States to present day, almost without exception, have sought to exploit vacancies on the Supreme Court for ideological and partisan purposes, and senators have done much the same, supporting or opposing nominees who help further their own goals, primarily those that advance their chances of re-election, their political party, or their own policy interest, with the Whigs bringing down three of President Tyler's nominees in 1844, but one example. Then I know there, will those, there are those of you who will challenge the second part of my argument. You will assert, as do virtually all Supreme Court justices, that correct answers to legal questions exist and that justices are neutral with policy-making, politics playing only a minor role. But I hope the stories I'll recount and the data I'll present convince you that the late political scientist, C. Herman Pritchett, second only to Henry in my book, <laughs> was far closer to the mark when he wrote these words in 1941. Okay. With that long wind-up, let me turn to the first part of my argument, and I want to start with presidents. There's a story that some scholars tell about how the president used to select justices back in the good old days. Presidents would search far and wide 
for the smartest, most meritorious lawyer in the country and appoint him to the court. No other considerations came into play except maybe geography. Exhibit A in support of this old saw is invariably Herbert Hoover's appointment of Benjamin Cardozo to replace Oliver Wendell Holmes. Hoover had no reason to believe that Cardozo shared his values, political or otherwise. And in fact, here's what he said about Cardozo. He actually wrote this, and I've taken the quote from Professor Abraham's book. And it's true. Hoover was a Republican, and Cardozo was a Democrat and a progressive at that. Cardozo was Jewish when Brandeis was already on the court, and there were two sitting justices from New York. It seems as if sheer merit drove Hoover's selection of Cardozo, or at least sheer merit drove the senators, the law professors, and the judges who pressured Hoover into nominating the Democratic Jew from New York. Cardozo was, after all, America's most respected judge, as Professor Abraham reminds us. This is a nice story, and part of it rings true. I do believe that presidents seek out meritorious candidates, and I know Professor Abraham shares this belief. Happily, Professor Abraham, the data support us. Okay. My colleague, Jeff Siegel, analyzes liberal and conservative newspaper editorials written between the time of nomination through confirmation to assess perceptions of the nominee's qualifications. Using the editorials, he rates the nominees on a scale of zero, which is unanimously unqualified, all the way at the bottom, to one unanimously qualified. Siegel includes the last 47 candidates for the court. Here I'm showing you the Nixon nominees forward. On average, 75% of all statements about candidates' qualifications were positive, and that includes Carswell, who clearly brings down that average, right? But to me, the importance of qualifications, or at least perceived qualifications, is probably the only general lesson we can take from the Hoover-Cardozo story. Because Hoover's willingness to cave on qualifications is quite unique. Most presidents have put their political goals first and then shopped around for candidates of high quality who share their political and ideological commitments. And I do mean most. I understand that some commentators assume that ideology as a priority is new, dating only back to the Reagan administration in the 1980s. This emphatically is not the case. Just read Professor Abraham's book and you'll learn that while Reagan's advisors did care a great deal about appointing justices who shared their conservative commitments, so too did virtually all their predecessors 
or as Professor Abraham puts it, all presidents have tried to pack the court to mold it in their image. Our third president, Professor Abraham tells us, fervently hoped to break the Marshallinian Federalist stranglehold on the course of Supreme Court decisions. And our 18th president, Ulysses S. Grant, Professor Abraham writes, may himself have been bored by politics, but his advisors made it clear to Grant that he needed to pack the court with Republican loyalists. Apart from geographical suitability, other qualifications, Professor Abraham reports, appeared not to matter. In addition to the correctives Professor Abraham offers to the conventional narrative of merit trumping politics in the good old days, there's relevant quantified data, actually too much data to report in this short lecture to support Professor Abraham's histories. But I wanted to give you two tastes of the data. The first are same party nominations. In total, presidents have transmitted 175 names to the Senate. 89% were from the same party as the president. And that's been true since the beginning, as you can see, reinforcing again the exception that is Cardozo. Presidents may be looking for meritorious candidates, but they're looking within their own party. This graph is about partisanship. The second bit of data I want to present is about ideological compatibility. In addition to assessing perceived qualifications, my friend Jeff Siegel uses newspaper editorials to establish the perceived ideology of the nominee before confirmation, before they cast a single vote. The ideology scores range from zero, unanimously judged to be conservative, to one, unanimously judged to be liberal. Again, Siegel has calculated these scores for the last 47 nominees, but here they are for, for the nominees from Nixon forward. Now on the surface, at least to me, this looks approximately right. For example, note all five nominees by a Democratic president are at the top of the graph, indicating that they are the most, sorry, indicating they are the most liberal. And the Reagan appointees, Rankwist and Scalia at the bottom, along with the two Bush appointees. And keep in mind, this is all before confirmation. Still, the question remains, how well do these scores correlate with the president's ideology? Very well, it turns out. Let's take Sonia Sotomayor, appointed by Barack Obama. Now, suppose I wanted to predict Sotomayor's ideology as a nominee based on Obama's ideology. I predict Sotomayor would be a 0.75 on Siegel's zero to one metric, so pretty liberal. Her newspaper ideology, according to Siegel, 
is 0.78 for a very low error rate. So small, in fact, it's almost as if Obama cloned himself and appointed himself to the Supreme Court. Now, you may think I selected Sotomayor because the prediction is especially accurate. Not so. Of course, some predictions are better than others, as you might expect. William Brennan's prediction isn't very good. Justice Hoover knew he was appointing a progressive Democrat when he named Cardozo. So did Eisenhower when he nominated Brennan. But Kagan's prediction is even better than Sotomayor's, as is, say, Felix Frankfurter, of all people. Overall, the correlation for the 47 nominees is well over 75%. Now, these data don't speak to whether the nominees will vote the way the president wants. We'll get there very soon. But they do suggest that political compatibility has never been far from the minds of most presidents. Yes, I know, I understand, some say today's presidents use more vigorous veteran procedures. But keep in mind that over 60% of all nominees personally knew the president who named them to the court. Hardly a surprise if ideological fidelity and partisan loyalty are major criteria, as Professor Abraham teaches us. Okay. That's the president. What about senators? Now, I've recounted stories about Brandeis and Cardozo. Here's a third story. It's actually a tale of four justices. The first two are, are Antonin Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. These were nominees at opposite ends of the political and ideological spectrum Yet the Senate confirmed both by lopsided margins. Scalia by a vote of 98 to 0, even though, think about this, four, Democrats held 47 seats in the Senate at that time. As for Ginsburg, only three of the 44 Republicans in the Senate in 1993 voted against her. Compare them to the two most recent nominees, Kagan and Gorsuch, also at opposite ends of the spectrum. Only five of the 41 Republicans supported Kagan, and only three Democrats voted for Gorsuch. To some commentators, this is proof positive of an important change in the confirmation process. Well, it's certainly an indicator of a change in the Senate, but that change may have little to do with the court. It relates to the increasing polarization in American politics that scholars of Congress have well document, documented. This graph shows you the ideological distance between the two major parties in the Senate, so today the Republican and Democratic Party. That distance, as you can see, the distance between the two parties fell in the late 19th century through the mid-20th century. 
but it's increased steadily ever since. And today, the ideological distance between the two parties is higher now than at any other time since the end of Reconstruction. And you wonder why the votes on Gorsuch and Kagan were so tight. But even in periods without such intense polarization, partisanship and ideology have played a huge role in the confirmation process. In terms of partisanship, the Senate almost always confirms nominees from its party, 83% of the nominees, and looks more skeptically on nominees from the opposing party, as you can see. Ideology is even more extreme. Okay. Here is the predicted probability of a senator voting for the nominee if the nominee and the senator are ideologically in sync. Think, it's a little small down there, but think Neil Gorsuch and Ted Cruz. It's pretty much a sure bet, 97% chance that the senator will vote for the nominee, as Cruz did for Gorsuch, even if the nominee isn't especially well-qualified, and Gorsuch was, in fact, well-qualified. Here's the opposite. This is the Ted Kennedy-Robert Bork scenario, where the nominee and the senator couldn't be more different. The odds of voting in the nominee's favor are virtually zero. You can see 4%, close to zero. And that holds even when the nominee's credentials are stellar. What does this mean? Take Robert Bork. You all remember Robert Bork? Okay. I know some suggest that Bork would have made it to the court if it had senators and interest groups not questioned his role in Watergate, or if he had rehearsed his answers, or even if he had shaved his beard. <laughs> but our analysis suggests these things did not do him in. It was rather the perception of his right of center ideology, or more precisely, his ideological incompatibility in, with the Senate that kept Robert Bork from a seat on the high court. Again, none of this is to say that the ideological effect isn't growing. It is, but it's been there for a very long time. Okay, if I have convinced you that politics has always infused the process of appointing Supreme Court justices, then the question is why, which brings me to the second part of my argument about the justices. Now, supporting that argument is going to take three quick steps. First step is easy because we've already considered it. Remember the Sotomayor, Obama example? And she's not the exception. We know overall that presidents appoint nominees who share their ideology. All right. Now, 
The fit between the president's ideology and his nominees is interesting, the first step, but for my purposes, it is relevant only if the nominees, once they become judges, justices, vote on the basis of their ideology. To put it another way, if Gorsuch and the others are right and justices generally reach decisions based on shared legal principles or neutral values rather than on their individual ideology, then it would matter not whether a president and his candidate hold the same political values at the time of nomination. Beginning with Pritchett, political scientists have developed mounds of evidence to refute all these claims up here and to show instead that there's a very strong relationship between the justices' ideology and their votes. I won't rehearse the 80 decades of findings, but instead I'm gonna show you just one graph. Now I know this looks a little crazy, but it conveys a lot of information. Okay. It shows you the relationship between the nominee's pre-confirmation ideology which we've looked at before. So remember Sonia Sotomayor right here? She has that pre-confirmation ideology of about 78%, so pretty liberal. On the vertical axis, right over here, is the percent of liberal voting on the Supreme Court. So for Sonia Sotomayor, about 60% of her votes, a little over 60%, right there, are liberal votes. Okay. The line shows you the fit between the pre-confirmation ideology and voting as a justice on the Supreme Court. The closer a justice is to the line, the better the fit between their pre-confirmation ideology and their liberal voting. Did I lose you? Okay, great, okay. It turns out that most justices are shockingly close to the line. You can see that. And in fact, ideology explains well over 80% of the variation in voting. I take that, that's good. There are some exceptions, of course. Harlan is the worst prediction, right over here. He's much more conservative than we would have expected. And Stevens and Blackman up here aren't great either. But for most of the others, their ideology at the time of nomination is a great predictor of voting on the court. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, right over here, reaches liberal decisions in about 63% of the court's cases, almost exactly the percentage we would have expected from nominee Ginsburg. Likewise, Antonin Scalia over here, assessed by virtually all evaluators as a conservative at the time of his nomination, 
voted as that label would suggest. All right. Having shown that presidents choose nominees with ideologies similar to theirs, step one, and, have, and that the ideologies of the justices influence their voting behavior once on the court, step two, I must complete the picture by examining the relationship between the president's ideology and the justices voting. This last step is necessary because even if presidents appoint justices who share their ideology, and even if those justices are ideological in their voting, it doesn't necessarily follow that presidents get what they want. And in fact, as some of us know, presidents have been notorious whiners about their Supreme Court justices. This is Teddy Roosevelt on the great Oliver Wendell Holmes. And many of you know Eisenhower's claim about the appointment of Earl Warren, and he apparently thought much the same of William Brennan. And then there's David Souter. When Bush won, selected Souter to serve on the Supreme Court in 1990, the president had any number of reasons to believe that he was appointing a justice who would cast reliably conservative votes. Even newspaper editors agreed. Before Souter joined the court, they deemed him to be to the right, more conservative than Kennedy and O'Connor. But Souter was a rather consistent liberal voter, far more likely to join John Paul Stevens than Antonin Scalia. Still, I dare say that most presidents got exactly what they wanted in their justices. Barack Obama, one of the more liberal presidents of the modern era, is likely pleased with Sotomayor, one of the more liberal justices. And we could probably say the same of, Obama, of Obama's prede predecessor, Bush II's appointment of the rather conservative Alito. Actually, though, we don't have to guess. In my work with Siegel, now this I think is kind of cool. You might not like it, I think it's cool. We try to predict the justices voting based on the president's ideology. Okay? So this, the question is, can we use Bush II's ideology to predict Alito's voting? And the answer is yes. If I used Bush's ideology to predict Alito's voting, I would predict about 39% conservative decisions. His actual percentage, uh, I'm sorry, liberal decisions, 38% liberal decisions. His actual percentage of liberal decisions, 36%, for an error rate of 2.3%. And as the last column there shows, that's my error rate, Alito is about average. If Obama cloned himself with Sotomayor and Kagan, Reagan did much the same with Scalia, 
and Clinton with Ginsburg. Though mistakes do happen, here's Souter, big era. Presidents do tend to get what they want in their nominees, which completes the argument. You know, fresh from his defeat in the Senate, Robert Bork declared that the political battle over his confirmation was a direct product of the, quote, political decisions made by the Warren Court, the liberal Warren Court in the 1950s and 60s. Bork wrote, and I'm quoting, when the court is perceived as a political rather than a legal institution, nominees will be treated like political candidates. Bork is partially right. Justices are political, and their politics seep into their decisions. But he's wrong, I think, to suggest that this is somehow new. Right? Justices always have been political be beings. The vast majority, serving since the early days of the Republic, have affiliated with partisan groups, and on top of that, many nominees attracted the attention of key players in the appointment process because they had been active in party and interest group politics. Bork was hardly the exception. In fact, he was closer to the rule. This is no slam on Robert Bork, though. Actually, he and I fundamentally agree that the appointment process is political because the justices themselves are political in their decision-making. He would also probably agree that until the justices stop reaching decisions based on their partisan or ideological commitments, the process will remain political. Where Bork and I depart is over the possibility of this ever occurring. Bork believed that if the justices adopted a neutral methodology with originalism his favorite flavor, the appointments process would return to a focus on merit rather than politics. I say there's nothing to return to. Political decision-making and political decisions started in 1800, not in 1953 with the modern court. If for this and no other reason, President Trump clearly appreciates the importance of judicial appointments. And more to the point, he knows all too well that if he were to replace Justice Kennedy with another Justice Gorsuch, the seventh version of the Roberts Court will likely take its place among the most conservative in contemporary American history, at least until the next confirmation battle. Thank you so much for listening, but mostly thanks to you, Professor Abraham, for your extraordinary contributions to our understanding of law and legal institutions. Thank you.